morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Friday, July 14th, we are studying Psalm 77. In today's text, the psalmist cries out to the Lord, asking if he will forget his grace forever. The psalmist then ultimately finds refuge by remembering the years of the Most High and all of the mighty works that God has done. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Brian Flammy. Pastor Flammy serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. Pastor Flammy, welcome back to Sharp Iron. It's always good to be here. So we get started today. Pastor Flammy, talk to us about the Psalter in general. What do we need to know about the Psalms that helps us to receive them as Christians? Yeah, great question. The Psalms are the hymns of the Old Testament. And not only are they the hymns of the Old Testament, I really think that they are the excellent hymns of the New Testament as well. Yeah, your question made me remember a comment that was made by a theologian some years ago that really bugged me. And that was that this awareness of the inner life, of the spiritual language, of a reality that transcends the body is something that is proper to the New Testament. It does not belong to the Old Testament. The Old Testament, this theologian said, had to do with external realities, things that you could touch, see, taste, smell. Uh, Whenever we as Christians speak of like the conscience or the afflicted soul uh, uh, or the need for comfort, these were not, in fact, concerns of the Old Testament people. Now, I, I remember thinking about that for about five seconds and then thinking to myself, this guy's never read the Psalms. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, so if you try to prove that David had a very externally oriented uh, sort of tactile existence, he only cared about things that that he could see, taste, touch, smell and that the God that he desired was the one who could provide external as opposed to spiritual salvation, all of that is thrown under the bus as soon as you look at the Psalms. And you realize that the Old Testament saints had a very rich, a very rich inner spiritual life. That just as we desire uh, the comfort of conscience, because we wrestle with the guilt of our sins, which is a very internal reality. It's not something that's easily displayed. It's not something that actually, it's a reality that goes far beyond something that could be shown by the the external state of the body. Uh, You go to the Psalms to learn about that inner reality of of the desire for comfort and that God gives that comfort. And in fact, this is really the movement of the Psalm, as we'll be getting into, and you'll explain to us a little bit, how the psalmist starts with his afflicted state. Uh, which has a lot to do, of course, with external concerns. But for him, it's his problem is that he has no comfort. And he's not talking about physical comfort. He's speaking of spiritual comfort, right? And so the Psalms show the need for spiritual comfort, where the saints of the Old Testament go for that comfort, who, uh, and, and that is, of course, Christ. 
And so, for that same reason, the saints of the New Testament have, from the very beginning, used the Psalms as their own, because they all point to Christ. His incarnation, uh, his birth, his life, his atoning death, and his victorious resurrection are all shown forth in the Psalms prophetically. I mean, this is, if you remember David's last words, right, that he says, uh, and David calls himself a, a uh, uh, that is, that he is a spokesman of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit speaks by him. He speaks prophetically by him. You know, and Christ Himself says of David that he is inspired. Inspired to say what? Filled with the Holy Spirit to do what? Uh, to speak specifically of the coming Christ and the great work of salvation that would set all of the people free from not just external evil, but most importantly the inner evil of that guilty conscience that stands under the wrath of God. Uh, just as David looked forward to the peaceful conscience that comes from the forgiveness of sins from his Redeemer, so also the Christians of the New Testament look back to the Psalms to learn about how we can be like David, right? And, and use his very words to articulate the internal realities of guilt of, uh, and the joy of absolution. Hmm. Now, when we think about Psalm 77 in particular, what is some of the context that we should keep in mind from the words that we're going to read here? Yeah, the Psalms are to be used not only in private uh, meditation. And what I mean by that, by private, is that it's it's for you and you alone. And it's between you and God alone. Not at all. The Psalms from the very beginning were used in the context of, of worship, public worship, the divine service. And so, uh, like many of the Psalms, you have uh, an introduction uh that, show, that says, to the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph, right? Uh, now, the scholars have very interesting discussions and debates about uh, who is this guy, Jeduthun, and what does it mean that the psalm is of Asaph? Is it of a particular man, a particular Levitical family that, that uh, was known for the liturgical musical co- compositions uh, uh, in, in that contributed to the liturgical life of the temple? Uh, is Jeduthun not necessarily a man, but in fact the tune, like a musical setting? Uh, those are all good questions. <laughs> I wish I had better answers. Uh, it's, it, it's good for us to think about these things, but I'm not, I, I'm not sure I'm the guy to go to, to to get more than that. What I can say sp- with great certainty is that this was used in the divine service. This was used um, as God's people gathered together to sing together, to articulate not just a private reality of one man, but the spiritual reality of the whole congregation of Israel. Hmm. Now, you mentioned to me prior to our starting recording that there's connections here to the book of Habakkuk. What are some of the connections to Habakkuk in Psalm 77? Yeah, specifically uh, this psalm in Habakkuk uh, verses 8 through 10, and some of the other commentators out there will just cite the entire chapter of Habakkuk chapter 3. And because of the thematic and, and, uh, and, vocab- and vocabulary, uh, the, or the similarities of vocabulary, the question becomes, well, is this psalm to be dated at the time of Habakkuk's writing? Because that was around 600 B.C. So can we say with some certainty that that's when this psalm comes from? Or is it that Habakkuk is drawing upon the rich tradition of Psalm 77 as he learned it in the divine service at the temple. Uh, And so you see the debate go both ways. I saw scholars, one say one side, the other say the other. 
for for my part, I I like to think that Habakkuk, you know, in in seeing the the temple's last years and last moments, draws richly upon the divine worship of the temple and the psalms that were used there, especially Psalm seventy-seven. And so, if you you if you would like on your own or after the show or when you have a little bit of time for extra study, one of the things I would highly recommend is to read as a companion to Psalm 77, Habakkuk chapter 3, to see how they deal with the same uh, issues of of suffering, uh, of encountering evil in the world, and learning to look to God as the one who does the mighty acts of salvation to set us free, and especially how that's done through Christ. Especially in Habakkuk chapter 3, I mean, he goes out of his way to talk about how when God does these things, it's for this, not just for the sake of a, a worldly salvation, but to save his anointed, his Christ, in drawing his people out of Egypt, you know, and that's mm. that's deep Christological theology, as we like to say. Yeah, well, and even I mean, just to some of the themes of the book of Habakkuk as a whole, deal with this question of of evil and what God is doing in the midst of it, and of course, Saint Saint Paul quotes from Habakkuk chapter two that the righteous shall live by faith. I don't know if we can connect that to Psalm seventy seven or not, but I don't know, maybe maybe we'll see, Pastor Flamey. We can always try. Okay, all right. All right, so let's take a look at this text. This is Psalm 77. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. That's our text for today. That is Psalm 77. Pastor Flamey, how would you structure this psalm? Where do you see sections, stanzas, divisions within this psalm? Yeah, I would divide this into three parts. The first part is roughly verses 1 through 9. And this is the affliction of the psalmist, right? And, and, uh, and, his, and his realization that, well, not only is there no comfort in the world, which we'll get to and we'll talk about, but also... Uh, there's a way of doing theology and meditating upon God and his works that also does not give comfort. And, and this is something that Luther brought out in his commentary on this very psalm. The second division is now between, I would say, 
uh, verses 10 through about 15. And in, in verses 10 through 15, you see that the psalmist finds the correct source of comfort by remembering the merciful and gracious uh, acts of God, even when his people didn't uh, deserve it. Uh, and and, and uh, so that's the, really the turning point of the psalm. And then you get in verses 16 through 20, the specifics. He, he meditates on how God led his people out of captivity in Egypt uh, through the Red Sea and into life, and which is an amazing thing. And, and we'll talk about this when we get there. I'm sure of it. But the way he thinks of it is, is not a naturalistic wind blowing upon, you know, a shallow swamp of reeds. And so the people, you know, stagger through in the night and, and you know, the Egyptians happen to get bogged down in some mud. That's, that's not what's happening here. <laughs> Instead, it's as if God himself is walking with Israel into the ocean. And the ocean knows not only its maker, it's terrified it and it splits so to let him through. And so he's so there's a kind of this double image of mastery over creation because he's the Lord of creation and also his presence, his intimate presence with his people as they walked on the seabed to get to the other side of the Red Sea. So also God walked beside them. Mm. All right. So the first nine verses, as you said, deal with the matter of the psalmist's affliction and comfort. The lack thereof comes up right away. Take us in those first three verses or so, and how does the psalmist pray, and how does he express his desire and lack of comfort? Yeah, I would. So it's interesting. You mentioned Habakkuk chapter two, and the righteous shall live by faith, right? And the psalmist has great faith, and you can see that already from verse one. He cries aloud to God. Now, all kinds of people cry aloud to God, oftentimes without any thought or or belief behind it. You know, like I was in. The godless country, I should not say that. There are godly people in Iceland, okay? There's a small congregation of confessional Lutherans there. Uh, God be praised for their faithfulness. That being said, if you run into like 99.9% of the people who are natives of Iceland, right? uh, They do not believe in God. That is, they don't believe that there is a God, let alone that Christ is his son. Uh, And so, no doubt, many of them, because they heard it from their parents, who heard it from their parents, they'll stub a toe and say, uh, and they'll use the name of God upon their lips. Uh, but in the way that they use God in their, that time of even small distress comes from a place of not faith, hmm. right? It comes from a place of, of habit. And it's amazing to me how in just walking around the streets of Roswell, New Mexico, you hear God's name being thrown out at times of minor and great distress all the time, Right. A woman who sees something terrible happens, throws her hands up to her mouth and says, oh, again and again, oh, God, oh, my God, oh, my God, right? She may not be a Christian. And she says these things, but she doesn't really think that God is seeing her in a distress and is ready to answer her. However, the psalmist is different. Not only does he say, hey, does he acknowledge what he's doing? With my lips, I am crying out to the almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth. Not only am I doing that, I have the conviction that as I pray aloud to this almighty, transcendent creator of all things, that he will hear me. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so the person who stubs their toe, who says, oh, my God, uh, that person doesn't say what the psalmist here says, that the Lord hears. And so this comes from faith. And this is 
this already shows us at the very beginning, even though he's going to take us through the, the depths of the dark night of the soul, yet we know how it's going to conclude because he is a man of faith. Mm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So he continues then into verse 2. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. So there again is, is faith in the day. Also at night, his hand is stretched out without wearying. But then he starts to talk about how he his soul is not going to be comforted. He remembers God, but he moans. His spirit faints. What's happening in verses 2 and 3? Yeah, this is really interesting. Uh, and and Luther, in his, in his genius, picks up on this in his commentary on the psalm. When he meditates on the works of God, for Luther in this moment is, is that uh, when he thinks about God and he, he's trying to find comfort, he wrestles theologically with the Lord. And all that he can remember is that some are eternally damned and some are eternally saved, right? And, and so Luther says his distress is a spiritual distress, a distress over the fate of his own soul. Is God for him? Is God against him? Right? And so for Luther, this is a great question of predestination that he's wrestling with in the psalm. It's an amazing sort of thing. Uh, now, we are not exactly sure uh, about uh, the, the, the particular cross or trial that's been laid upon the psalmist. Some of the commentators out there suggest that it's not even a personal affliction. Rather, he's looking at the state of Israel, seeing their godlessness and God's coming wrath and destruction against them, and says, and for that reason, he cries out to God, and he's wrestling with God, asking himself the question, are we not your people? Have you not set us aside for your, uh, for your grace and blessing? How is it then that we are about to be destroyed, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, now, what's, what strikes me about this is in his refusal to be comforted, how this is a very, very common experience of people in the world. And something perhaps that we as Christians, you know, in our, in our desperate search for something meaningful and relevant to say to the world as they spiral out of control into secularism and godlessness, what, I mean, what special thing or what meaningful thing can we bring to them that they haven't yet heard is probably this, that in tragedy and in loss, the world in the end has nothing, right? Uh, so I don't know, like I was watching this movie. I never watch movies, right? So that's news in and of itself. I watched a movie <laughs> and I picked a good one. It was called Ford versus Ferrari, right? It was about, uh, you know, the Ford GT team going up against the evil Ferraris in the 60s and how they kicked butt for like three or four years, which is amazing. Just awesome Americana. You know, it made me want to start crying a little bit, you know, when you saw the Ford coming across the finish line before the Ferraris, right? Well, at the end of this movie sadly uh one of the main characters this great driver of the of the gt he dies in a testing accident right uh and and so you have uh uh, shelby who goes to the house of his family and he sits in his car looking at the house of the family uh and he and, and he can't help it he can't get out he can't go to the door he can't talk to this guy's wife why is that it's because he has nothing to say in the end words aren't enough. Actions aren't going to be enough. Nothing he can bring to that moment can actually give even a modicum of comfort. It will be a sham if he does so. Uh, and, and he says as much because the guy's kid like finds him sitting in the car and he says, what are you doing here? He said, well, I thought I would come and see you and your mom, but in the end, words, words aren't, aren't any good. He actually mm-hmm. says that. And that made me think how profoundly human that is, that in our, our in the depths of despair, 
being surrounded in this life by death as we are and by the ravages of sin, right? Where is comfort to be found? Uh, it, it, if you go and you you do deal with the, the funeral homes all the time like I do. So you know how they try in a very schmaltzy, uh, cringeworthy way to offer comfort to families in their deepest distress. And how even though the families might smile in appreciation for the, their attempts at comfort, at the end of the day, you know and they know that that comfort is fleeting and, in fact, nothing. Mm. You know? Uh, that, that, that Frank Sinatra song that Granddad once you know, played over the speakers at his funeral, in fact, does nothing. Which is harsh. I know it sounds harsh, but in fact, it's, it's true. If we try to find our comfort in this world, apart from Christ, uh, our soul, like the psalmists, will refuse to be comforted. Now, what's interesting is that not only did the psalmist seek out worldly comfort, right, in saying, well, I'm sure that he or she is in a better place. Maybe. I don't know. That's spiritual speculation. Instead of just trying to find that kind of worldly comfort, the psalmist is wrestling with the God that he knows that's been revealed to him by the Torah, the Old Testament, that he's heard about and has sung to and has prayed to with faith in the divine service. And this is why I think Luther's insight is so amazing that in seeing the distress of him, either himself or his people surrounding him, uh, he asks the question, is this, does all of this testify to the fact that God is against me? Especially, and, and, and then to take that, that question, is God for me or against me? And then to wrestle with the fact that I know that, that many will be damned eternally and that others will be saved eternally. And where does that leave me? How can I find comfort you know, with this awesome and majestic God who lifts up to salvation and casts the wicked into hell, right? Hmm. Uh, and, and, so, and so it makes a lot of sense if you think about it in that, in that sense. It's not just a worldly wrestling trying to find comfort, but a spiritual godly wrestling trying to find comfort. As long as he thinks of God in his, in his absoluteness, in his majesty, in uh, his judgment, when he remembers this God, he moans. And when he meditates on this God, his spirit faints. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So, but the fact that he is wrestling with with God at all is a good thing. Yes. I mean, right. That's right. Because yeah. <laughs> otherwise, you can't. If you're not going to engage in that wrestling with God at all, you'll you'll never go through and and get to where the psalmist ends up. Yeah. So that's right. Uh, one of the things that Luther points out in this commentary on the psalm is that if you haven't wrestled like this with God, you're not a Christian. Hmm. That yeah. if you if you if you don't know what the psalmist is talking about, it's because you're not paying attention. You don't know the preaching of the law and the terrors of God's judgment against sin, basically, you know. And and so I think that that is you've made a very fine point. That even though that he's wrestling with God in this way and finding no comfort, yet that wrestling is inevitable if you take God's word seriously and if you have actually heard somebody preach the law to you. Right, right. Well, and the, the reason I, I, I think that's an important point is because sometimes we, we read prayers like this in Psalm 77, and this isn't maybe the, the absolute worst example of it, but we read them and we think, that doesn't sound like something a pious Christian would say. Ah, yes. You know, and maybe, again, Psalm 77 isn't as strong as some, but I, I think that's why it's, it's important for us to keep that in mind. If we don't engage in this wrestling with God, if we do end up landing where the psalmist does, we're not there as, as steadfastly, I think. We need to engage in this 
and let the Lord do his work on us through his word. It could be that the Lord, it could be that the Lord wants you to wrestle with him like this. (laughs) That that when he shows up with Jacob, yeah, yeah, when he shows up with Jacob, he's like, let's go, you know? (laughs) (laughs) It's it's not like the Lord says, I'm I'm too holy and spiritual for this wrestling match. Instead, his holiness uh, can certainly bear our our weakness in this. And in fact, he he establishes something that is absolutely true and that is necessary for the comfort of salvation. And that this God that we have is not the moral therapeutic, therapeutic deistic God of many American imaginations, right? He's not the gumball machine of the sky. Instead, he is the God that, as Luther mentioned in his commentary, he is the God that saves eternally and also damns eternally. And this is terrifying. And this is uh, something that has to be wrestled with according to the Ten Commandments. It's amazing to me, like in, our, in this day and age, uh, how even the, the good Lutherans are really, really shy when it comes to preaching the law, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, you don't want to say that the law is for you. I mean, the temptation, you know this, the temptation is always there in the pulpit, in the Bible study as you're writing a newsletter article for your church, uh, to soften the message a little bit so that the people won't get offended because they know that it's their sins that are being called out, you know? Uh, and and, and, and the, it, probably a very worldly, shrewd, wise person, according to the world, will know that and measure his words accordingly, right? Mm. Uh, that's not the way the prophets or the apostles, though. Uh, instead of couching their terms, they speak directly to the sin because they realize that the, the Savior they have come to proclaim is a Savior from real sin and not from, you know, maybe you're a sinner. I don't know, I guess. Well, it's okay. Don't worry. Don't get too upset about it, right? I don't want you to get offended. <laughs> That's not the prophetic preaching we're after from the scriptures. We're after the preaching that, that shows us God and his holiness and might and, 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 and then shows us in our sin. So that when the Savior does appear, his glory is all the more, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so we're going to see the glory of the Savior as we continue into Psalm 77. More on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Brian Flammy this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, July 14th. We're studying Psalm 77 with Pastor Brian Flammy. He serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. Pastor Flammy, prior to the break, we were looking at the psalmist's affliction in verses 1 to 9. In verse 4, he talks about, you hold my eyelids open. He continues with this wrestling with God. Where does he go next? Yeah, the wrestling with God. It's 
he continues with this image that's very common to people who do know spiritual affliction. That is, when you lay down to go to sleep, right, the peaceful soul goes to sleep easily, trusting in the Lord, knowing, you know, the soul is safe with the Lord. It is the troubled soul that can't fall asleep. Your eyelids are, are stuck open, you know. And he's so troubled that even the right prayers to give to God, to wrestle with God, are, are nowhere to be found, right? So God has showed up to the wrestling match like we were talking about, and he's ready to go. And you look at yourself and you realize, hey, I'm 130 pounds and, you know, he's like 210. This is not going to happen. You know, I have nothing to give here. But then in verse 5, it says, he considers the days of old, the years long ago. Now, this is an important turn in the psalm. Because here, up until this point, he's considering his present or his country's present distress. And now he remembers the stories of the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, which is the story of God's creation uh, and the beginning of his great redemption, not just of some people, but of all people. And it takes us through Abraham, the promise given to Abraham, that through your seed, all the peoples of the world will be blessed. It reminds us of the promises that God made to the seed of Abraham, even as they were in bondage and slavery in Egypt. And it helps us to remember that for 400 years, God's chosen people set aside to be the bringers of the great Savior, a new affliction, the likes of which we cannot imagine. And yet, when the time was right, the Lord sent Moses, you know, to be his, his prophet. And Aaron, of course, along with him, to shepherd them out of Egypt and into, into the salvation uh, uh, that they had been desiring for years and years and years in slavery. You know? And so considering the things that had happened long ago is another way of just saying, I remembered my Bible stories. Because there is something that I learned in my Bible stories that I cannot see in my present distress. And that is, even though I see the effects of God's wrath around me, it makes me to remember mercy. God's mercy. Yeah. Yeah, there does. I mean, especially as, as he gets into those questions that are asked in verses seven to nine, it, it does seem like he's, you know, the will the Lord spurn forever? Will he never again be favorable? Has his love forever ceased? And it is those those accounts from what the Lord did long ago that give him, that begin to, I mean, the turn really starts in verse 10, as you said. But, but considering you know, here I am in this present distress, whatever it is, is this the way it's going to be forever? And it's those accounts of what God did long ago in the past that are a reminder of, of you know, the eternal nature of God, who he is, the eternal nature of his promises that begin to, again, start making that move toward the comfort. Yeah, that's a really great point. Uh, the, the promises are eternal. The promises are lasting. The deliverance of the Lord will come for those who believe it, Right. Uh, even though the eyes and, and the experience only see uh, dis with dismay the destruction of all the good things, right? Uh, it's amazing. Like even in Iceland, where I was hanging out with some Lutherans there this past week, they, they, they look at the United States and they ask me the question, what's wrong with your country? <laughs> Why is it they coming up? watched Ford versus Ferrari, apparently. Apparently, right. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> my country's fine. Thank you very much. No. So they obviously they know what we know, and that is, you know, we're we're bearing what looks like God's anger against our country because uh, 
everybody from every part of society is forgetting even the basic definitions that make for human life, right? Especially during this month of pride, uh, what is being condemned is the reality that God made us male and female, you know? How important is that distinction that it comes right after God says that he made us in his image? Male and female did he make them, right? And yet that is that that truth, that reality that is bound so closely to the image of God is being outright attacked right now. And we're seeing sort of the what looks like, well, where is the Lord in this? Why won't he stand up and defend his his own word, his own name? Have we been abandoned? It seems like all these kids in middle school even are talking about how they need to to be trans, how they need to transition from one gender to another, and and if so, through violent means, right? And how the teachers and their parents and society as a whole are enabling them to pursue this course of self-destruction and telling him this is the only way out for the affliction that you feel, right? And then I, if that doesn't make you throw up your hands and, just say, and say, Lord, where are you? I don't know what will, you know, that this kind of distra- this, this terrible distress that's fallen upon our country. And yet for the Christian who doesn't look for salvation necessarily in the things of the world, especially in the immediacy of, of how things present themselves to the experience, but remembers the promise of God, uh, like you said, they have an eternal thing, something that can last even, even for as long as 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Yet, holding fast to the promise, uh, salvation will certainly come, right? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, as, as opposed especially to other sources of comfort to which we might turn, other places we might search. Yeah, yeah that's right. Uh, so, of course, what is the present place that people are going to turn for salvation in our country's current distress. It's usually some kind of like political and or ideological savior, right? If, if everybody will just listen to that guy's podcast, right? He's so based. He has such awesome arguments. Nobody can refute his great wisdom, right? And yet that guy it does not have in and of himself what it takes to save us from the ravages of sin, death, and the power of the devil, which have clearly taken hold in this country, right? He... And so also with a political figure, well, if only we got this guy into office next year is the election year for the presidency. And so this kind of rhetoric and this kind of thinking is going to start even taking the Lutheran pastors and very faithful lay people by, uh, by storm. It's the and, most important election of your lifetime. Pastor that's Warren. right. You're going to hear that. You're going to hear that. And, and your friends are going to tell you that. You're going to say, well, maybe I don't want to vote. And they're going to say, no, you, you have to, because unless we do, right? Okay, so it's been like that for the last, how many election cycles? However you know? many we've voted in. <laughs> yeah, right. It's <laughs> the most important of your life. Now, I'm not saying don't vote. Not at all. Don't get me wrong about that. What I'm saying is, like, don't put your trust in princes. Put your trust in the Lord. Uh, realize that the Lord can uh, save us from our current uh, distress, if he so chooses. But we don't have a promise that this country our political system, and our culture will endure. What we do have a promise of is that the Lord will give us an eternal kingdom and a kingdom of, of resurrection and eternal life that, that will last long after this world is going to be destroyed. And this world will not last, right? And that's why if you do try to put your, your faith, uh, your hope, your trust into anything of this world, eventually you're going to be ashamed. You're going to be uh, dis- not just disappointed, but you're going to be failed because the saviors of this world might help. They could maybe, maybe if you're, if you're very fortunate, they might help for a little while, 
but they're not in the end going to save you from the true enemies that are tearing everything apart. You know, uh, the godlessness of sin, uh, you know, God's wrath that is shown in death and, and the bondage of the devil, the lie that keeps us from the truth of Christ. And so you're right in verses seven, eight, and nine, when the psalmist asks these very important questions, he's bringing to, to his mind the eternal and the powerful nature of the gospel promise, right? Which is very, very different from his present reality. And even when thinking of God in an abstract way and wrestling with just the holiness of God, as if that's the only way in which we know God. No, the way in which God reveals himself to us in the Holy Scriptures, in the Bible stories, is as a God who enters into our world, uh, who acts mightily for our salvation. Mm. All right, so he's, he's moving from that wrestling with God in an abstract sense to God as he has revealed himself in the Scriptures. As you said, there's a, a key turning point in verse 10 where he starts to turn toward the true source of comfort. His questions, his diligent remembrance have led him there. Talk about the way the psalm turns in verse 10. Yeah, this is, this is really amazing. I, he says, I will appeal to this to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Uh, and and there, in, in considering the right hand of the Most High, he thinks of God's uh, mighty actions for his people in the world, uh, especially for the seed-bearer nation that is Israel, right? Mm. Uh, and he remembers, and this is interesting, when talking about Habakkuk, we're going to make two references to Habakkuk chapter 2. So there you go. You asked the question at the beginning, and not only did I give you one, well, I'll give you two, right? <laughs> so, when you re- so when he remembers the deeds of the Lord, when he ponders all of the Lord's works, the wonders of old, the mighty deeds, he's remembering not only that God gave a temporal, worldly salvation to his people for a little while, he remembers that Abraham is reckoned to be righteous with God by his faith, you know, mm. uh, that the righteous... That the, the righteous live by faith, as St. Paul so quotes, right? Uh, and, and these, of all the works of God, are the greatest of all. That even though we are lowly sinners, you know, this is why it, it is so wonderful going through uh, you know, the stories of Genesis and Exodus. And you see Abraham's weakness. And we don't let that weakness dismay us. In fact, that gives us great comfort to see God's steadfastness to his promise, despite the weakness and the sins of men, Right? Uh, that God has resolved to save and, uh, and to forgive despite the weakness of men gives us the height of comfort. So when we consider the deeds of the Lord of the Old Testament, the wonders of old, and, and his works and his mighty deeds, uh, we're remembering that the Lord forgives. And he forgives for the sake of the coming seed who will crush the works and the ways of the devil. Hmm. You know, as, as you were saying earlier with the way Luther talks about predestination in regards to the psalm, I... I like that, and with this thought of wrestling God with him in a more generic sense versus now a more specific sense, one of the things that that I noticed, and it's not entirely exact, but it's pretty close, in verses 1 to 9, the psalmist speaks about God generally in the third person. He talks Mm -hmm. about God, he talks about him, but starting especially in verses 11 and following, now he begins to speak to God in the second person. You think about what the what the Exodus especially accomplished, that God says he wants to be their God and they would be his people. The psalmist begins to see that, that this, you know, this God about whom he's been talking is his God to whom he speaks now in the second part of the psalm. Yeah, that's so fantastic. So when when the Lord comes 
to Moses and reveals himself upon Mount Sinai in the burning bush, right? What is the great gift that is revealed to Moses and then the people of Israel? It's the name of the Lord. And with the name comes the right to call upon him as a person, you know? Now, for the philosopher, for the person who thinks of God in the abstract, to, to say that God has a name is an absurdity, right? And yet, for Christians of both Testaments, Old and New, uh, to say that God has a name is really a foundation for our salvation. It, and especially when you think about your baptism, that, that the almighty, transcendent creator God has a name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he's set that name upon you to mark you as your own and as one redeemed by Christ the crucified. Uh, so now, when you think about God, he's no longer abstract, but he is Heavenly Father. And when you, and you no longer think of him, like you said, in the third person, but you pray to him as dear children, uh, you know, pray to their dear father, asking him for all good things, knowing that not only, not only might he give good things, but that it's his very desire to give it to his children, right? And so now this changes the whole voice of the psalmist. Uh, now his, his uh, uh, voice is being lifted up in holy awe and worship and, and praise and thanksgiving to God, to say things like in verses 13 through 15, right? Uh, your way, O God, is holy. And what does it mean to be holy? It means that he is, he is greater than anything that calls itself like God upon the earth, right? He is not stained by sin, of course, but also that his salvation is holy, right? And, and, and it goes far beyond the worldly salvations of the false gods of this earth. So what God is great like our God? Obviously, not one. Uh, you are the God who works wonders. Uh, you, are, you have created all things and you have saved your people. And most importantly here, you could underline this in your Bibles, <laughs> you have made known your might among the peoples. This is something that we have to return to again and again in the Psalms and the rest of the Old Testament. The very fact that God speaks to his people and through that people to the rest of the world, you know. I was just having a discussion about this with uh, another theologian at a, at a conference earlier this month in June uh, at our Digital Catacombs conference. He was a Methodist guy. I know, Lutherans hanging out with Methodists. What's going on? <laughs> Anyways, he, uh, uh, he made this point uh, in his lecture, and I talked to him about it later, that for Justin Martyr, this great early, earliest of the Christian apologists, his arguments were always based upon the scripture with the assumption that the world doesn't have an excuse. They have the Bible. They need to have been reading it. And he, so he just says, I'm going to argue as if you already know what's in the Bible. <laughs> Which, I don't know. Maybe you say to yourself, well, that's foolish. You can't argue like that as an apologist. Well, Justin Martyr doesn't care. And, and, but that, I, I think the really awesome point that can be drawn out of that is that the, the world has the Holy Scriptures, God's revealed world as its heritage, right? Uh, so not only uh, do we as Christians uh, merely speak, you know, the words of, of gospel for conversion and that's it, but rather we're preaching for the, for the knowledge and to educate the world concerning how God has in fact revealed himself uh, so that they're without excuse so that we can speak to them like Justin Martyr would saying, you guys know the Bible stories. We've been saying, we're speaking about them publicly forever, nonstop, right? Uh, we write books about them. Uh, we, we present papers on them at your conferences, right? 
and, and, and I don't know, maybe we should take this more seriously, this idea of becoming the educators for a biblically illiterate world. If we can't do anything else, at least we can do that, right? Uh, so if the big question is, how does the church approach the world and offer something to the world? That would be a good place to go. Uh, we are the, we are the, the ones who, who teach biblical literacy. Uh, it, it's just a pra simple pragmatic terms. It, it's, a, it's a great way to unlock the history and the literature of the past. Uh, mm. you, because reading something from before 50 or 100 years ago, half the time you won't get the allusions and the references unless you know the stories of the scriptures. Right? Right. It's just a fact of life. Right. And I mean, and then, you know, doing that allows for what happens with this psalmist himself. The more we know what is there in the scriptures, that's where the comfort is to be found. When we see this one who has been ruling forever, who has made his promises and will keep them, the more we know that, the, mm. the more likely we are to receive that comfort. And that is what this world needs, because the world does look for comfort in all the wrong places, as we were talking about earlier. Right. So what better than to... to Proclaim the scriptures. That's you know. That's what the Lord has given us to do. Yeah. So the, yeah, and He finds the 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 comfort in the Redeemer and the redemption of the people. Right. So in right. verse fifteen, you with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. So if if your problem is enslavement and bondage, and many people think so today, that their problem is being in an oppressed state, what they really need is a Redeemer. You know, and the world offers them a kind of redemption in a semi-Marxist way, which is sad because it only ha it only has to do with like power revolution, and that's not that's not going to bring you anything in the end but grief and violence. Instead, you find a life-giving redeemer in the stories of the Holy Scriptures, right? And this is the particular comfort and the peculiar comfort of the psalmist, just like you were saying. And then he brings us especially to this one Bible story, the Exodus. In verses 16 through 20. Yeah, very good. So we've got about eight minutes here, Pastor Philemon. Let's talk about this specific reference that we see, the various ways that the psalmist proclaims it in verses 16 to 20. Yeah, like we said at the beginning, I'm glad that we got this far. <laughs> I haven't <laughs> rambled too much. So, sadly, sadly, because of the destructive influence of biblical criticism upon all walks of Christian life, if you open up a lot of your study Bibles, even if it comes from a conservative place, oftentimes it will describe the exodus and the splitting of the, of the Red Sea in very naturalistic terms. They're going to look for the shallowest or the least wet part of land that separates Egypt from the Sinai Peninsula. And they'll say, it's probably through here. They said, well, it's probably through like a shallow lake or through a marsh. There was a great wind because the scriptures said there, were, there was a wind that blew through the night. And, and, and that wind, this, this freakish naturalistic wind, dried up a section of swamp or, or lake bottom enough for the people of Israel to get by, right? Uh, the psalmist does not read Exodus in this way, and neither should you. <laughs> That's right. The way that you should read Exodus, according to the psalmist, is the people of Israel uh, standing on the shores of, of a great sea. And we're not talking about a shallow lake or a pond or, 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 or a swampy area. We're talking about the sea with crashing waves and uncharted depths. They're standing on the edge of the sea, which for them is death. And then they're being pursued by death, right? There's Pharaoh coming hard against them with his army. 
and they see nothing but their destruction uh, to one side and the other, right? And so the Lord, of course, shows himself as not just abstractly there, like, you know, what, what is it? What is it? The, the last thing you're supposed to tell a person who actually needs help? Well, thoughts and prayers are with you. Thoughts and prayers, right? <laughs> That's, people mock that, okay? And for maybe good reason. I don't know. Uh, but that's not, it's not a thoughts and prayers God that we have in this moment, but instead a God who stands with his people, personally standing there. And, and there, of course, he stands as the pillar of fire and cloud uh, blocking, you know, the passage of, of Pharaoh and his army so that they cannot get at Israel to tear them to pieces, to kill them, to slaughter them. Instead, the Lord stands there and, and fights for his people while at the same time separating the waves. Mm-hmm so that the people can pass through the sea, this place of death, pass through death on dry ground, right? Uh, and and, and it, it, I, it's so great. The Lord knows that he's going to institute the sacrament of baptism quite clearly and specifically with great promises in the New Testament, right? But already he is creating baptism <laughs> for this people so that by passing through the waters of death, Right? They may arise on the other side uh, redeemed and, and saved forever from their ancient enemies. You know? uh, mm-hmm. And so here the whole people are baptized, uh, and it's because the Lord passes uh, uh, through, the, through death with them. Right, Just as he, when you are baptized, pass through death with the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that Jesus is there with you in the waters of baptism. And so the water, of course, seeing its Lord and maker, uh, flees before him. You know, it's been personified. It runs out of the way. It jumps out of the way, leaps to these great heaps on either side so that the people walk through with these walls of water on either side. You know, So we're not going through a marsh, despite what all the biblical critics say out there. The deep, in fact, trembles. You know, So the clouds pour out water. The skies give forth thunder. The arrows flash on every side. All of nature is now at the command of the Lord and under his power. So lightning is not just a, a force of nature, but it in fact becomes the arrows that the Lord directs at his enemies, right? Hmm. Uh, and so when the earth trembles and shakes, why is the earth trembling and shaking in verse 18? It's because the Lord is walking with his people, with every step he takes. <laughs> you know, the power of the Lord is manifest. In verse 19, so your way was through the sea and your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen, right? Uh, so there the, the conclusion is, is, uh, is absolute and certain that here the people of Israel were surrounded by death on their left, death on their right, death behind them uh, by, by their own strength and reason. They had nothing but death surrounding them. And then, but, but nevertheless, because the Lord was there with them, walking with them. They were not only spared for a few moments, but they were saved eternally, right? This becomes this, this becomes the foundation to kind of bring this full, full circle. This becomes the great foundation for the spiritual comfort of the psalmist, right? Yeah. Uh, he desires something that's greater than just a temporary worldly salvation and help. He wants his soul to find great comfort in a God who gives eternal lasting promises of forgiveness of sins for the sake of the Christ. Hmm. So, Pastor Fleming, we got about two minutes here. As we think about this psalm and the way that the psalmist wrestles with God, searches for comfort, 
finds it in the accounts of what God has done in history, how do we make use of this psalm? How do we connect it to Christ so that we receive that same comfort that the psalmist had? Remember what what Jesus spoke about with Elijah and Moses on the top of the transfiguration. In, in St. Luke's Gospel, it says they spoke about Jesus' exodus. Exodus. So, the, so here, the psalmist had his exodus to remember the Redeemer. But that exodus was yet was all preparatory. For the greater exodus to come because there the Lord walked with his people in such a way that his footprints could not be seen upon the the ocean floor but when Christ came in the humility of human flesh uh, his footprints could be in fact seen and this this is an amazing truth that Jesus is the one who has come who is greater than Moses and he gives us a salvation that's greater than passing through the Dead Sea because there the Dead Sea was yet a metaphor for the greater uh, uh, you know, consuming waters of death that have descended upon the entirety of the human race because of sin. But because Jesus led us to the cross and he paved the way through death through his own blood and through the shedding of that blood, absolving us of our sins, covering us of the great guilt that demands God's uh, destruction and that demands our death, he has shown us that there is a also a great exodus for us through death into resurrection and eternal life to all who have been baptized into his holy name. So when we think in the moment of our distress about the works of God and the great acts of God, remember the cross of Jesus Christ, that he has conquered death. It is all under his feet. When he said it is finished, he means it. Uh, so uh, it's good for us to remember Moses, just like the psalmist, but remember that the psalmist himself would rejoice to have seen, he would have rejoiced to have seen Christ suffer, die, and rise on the third day as the greater exodus that the entirety of the Old Testament was anticipating and looking forward to. Pastor Brian Flammy is pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. He has been helping us today to study Psalm 77. Pastor Flammy, thanks for being our guest today. My pleasure. I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. You know, dear Christian, what the Lord has done. Jesus Christ, true God in our humanity, has lived, died, risen, and ascended for you. He is coming again to take you to your eternal home. Remember him and receive his comfort. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Psalm 77, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.